Hello and welcome to this week's Betting People with a very apt guest, a very appropriate one, because we have the Racing Post betting editor, Keith Melrose. Keith, thank you very much for joining us. Not at all. A pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm going to go straight in with a punting question, which is that when you started um, you know, betting semi-seriously or seriously, what mistakes did you initially make? Well, it depends uh, what we term by when I started betting seriously or semi-seriously, because I've always been making mistakes, uh, still am uh, to this day. I remember when I was um, very much starting out, when I was you know, basically just turned 18 and betting, I mean, a lot. I was very much a trends follower on the big races and uh, learned in time pretty quickly that you've got to be a little bit more flexible uh, with, uh, with how you approach those sorts of things. And um, I think when, when I started... Or maybe if I regarded seriously or semi-seriously as when I started working in racing properly, which would have been after I left university, um, I still had, I was very loyal to horses. I, I still am to a little degree, but nowhere near what I was. If a horse had a bit of form that I liked, if a horse had done something that I liked at some point in its career, it would take me a long time for that effect to decay. Um, when I realised now it's absolutely the opposite of that, I found handicap ratings in particular helped me get out of that habit a little bit. You know, you've got to you've got to decide whether a performance is still relevant to a horse and do it relatively quickly because if it's not running well, the handicapper himself is going to drop it. And you're going to find yourself going, well, I've got to back this horse, even though, you know, it's 25 and bang out of form, but three runs ago it did this 85 or whatever. And uh, you learn pretty quickly to do it that way. But, um, you know, it's never something that's completely left me. I think every punter is like that. I think we all find... That our early flaws never fully go away but um you know we have to just get good at controlling them best we can like just with our general characteristics really isn't it yeah absolutely um, i might say i agree with that certainly there'll be some mistakes um, that i keep making um was there anything that you found worked particularly well for you um that you know you've kept through to the day um you said you know you use handicap ratings a lot was there any other um things that you picked up on yeah, well, the ratings themselves and how they arrived, that was a big thing for me as well, because obviously, like anybody, I'd seen them written down yeah. uh, in front of me and, you know, you, you see them as a figure. Then when I started working in racing, my first job in racing properly was at Timeform. And you worked with handicappers there, met some, or worked with some of the best handicappers I've ever worked with, you know, guys like Matt Taylor and, and people like that, who, who just, I thought it was a lot more precise than it was. Um a lot of handicapping, they won't tell you this, but a lot of handicapping is feel. And, uh, you know, there's a little bit of, there are handicappers that are tip what you fancy types. Um, and that's fine as long as you're extremely good. And uh, luckily, a lot of these guys were. The, uh, and the things you pick up from them, it's always about, you know, one of the things I picked up from some certain, some of these guys and talking to them, like you would honestly socialise with these people, you'd be down in the pub with them at night and you would, you would find, you realise pretty soon there's a horse an individual horse has about 30, 40, 50 characteristics that it could be applicable. And the key to being actually a good punter, generally speaking, just irrespective of ratings or anything like that, is finding out the three or four that are going to be pertinent on this day in particular. And with some horses, it's easy. You knew exactly what the pertinent things to know about Tidal Baywar, for instance. Yeah. But there are other horses that you know, it might, it might be different on different days. And there's some horses that, you know, and it's just picking out and having the, the knowledge in the field to find out what is pertinent to the horse on that day. That really sums up its chance of winning that race and therefore determines whether it's worth betting. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of plenty of old favourites where you know we can point out how they're going to run. Um, I keep thinking back to Mad Moose, um, even though usually the people he never ended up starting. Um, now, one of the things I've noticed uh, recently, sort of as I've um, grown through punting or tipping career, is that you get certain times for prices to go. Um, and we'll come back to that later in the interview. But personally, do you ever prefer time either to tip or to bet when it comes to racing, at least? Tipping is a really hard question. It's one we always discuss, to be honest. It's a discussion I've had with just about every tipster at the Racing Post. When would you like to tip? Um, you know, some, somebody like Tom Siegel basically won't. Uh, he just, with prices, he just goes, well, I'm tipping. I'm, we're all judged to SP here at the Post. And mm. it's very difficult. I mean, it's in the sort of horses I would bet, though, if I'm looking the day before, which we are when we write our tipping copy. You know, they're the types of market. That price, if that horse is... If today's the day for that horse, there's a good chance it's going to go up a lot shorter than, than the price you're getting at, you know, six o'clock the night before or whatever. I'm quite fortunate, you know, I'm, to be honest, I'm not on massive, I'm not a sort of part of that puts down masses of stakes that's going to get me horrendously noticed by trading floors, so I can get away with a bit of evening before action still uh, with certain firms. And uh, that's a time when I do like to bet if I can, uh, if, if I see a price that I fancy, but for me, it is just the earlier the better. I'm all about trying to just beat SP. I, I'm, I seem to have a reasonable feel for, for SPs and what price horses will go up if they're fancied that day. And uh, quite okay at beating that SP, and it's where I would make my money probably. So I would like to bet as early as possible. Others I know are totally different. Others want to go in for the Betfair market when it's mature. Yeah. Well, that's the only time, a lot of the time, that they can potentially get on if, if they're not. Yeah, get matched probably. If they, yeah, if they have trouble getting on with bookies, it's the only time they can get on. Well, I couldn't do I, I, I'm going to tell you now, I'm not good enough to do that. When the market is fully mature to get on and, you know, you're betting in a, yes, you're betting into 103, 4% books, but when that's, once that market's fully mature, everybody has had their say, including people that mm. things you don't. Uh, it's, it's so difficult. And that's why I, I, I do think it's making it easy for myself betting as early as I can. Yeah, I'm personally in agreement on the early evening before part. Um, you know, uh, you pointed out there that the Racing Post gets judged to SP. Um, lots of people will be really interested, and I am too. Um, are there records and are, are they publicly available for all the Racing Post tipsters? Records are kept, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm not sure if we make them all publicly, but we have to get them checked and verified independently. Um, but the, I don't think they generally get made aware publicly because because we do get judged to SP, we hold ourselves to that standard really in a way that not many others do you know you'll talk you listen to services like Hugh Taylor where yeah the prices do go very very quickly but mm. gets judged to those prices that he takes and that is you know that's that's a decision an editorial decision basically there's and we 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 chose years ago to do it to SP I'm always thinking of ways to change it I've never thought of a, a one that actually works properly you know um I always thought about maybe judge it to to what price is available at 10 o'clock in the morning because that's you know you can get good money on them um it's the opposite of the SP what price is available at good money at the off well what was the first price available at good money Mm. Uh, the opposite way of looking at it it might be a satisfactory way of doing it i've met with some resistance on that one but i think it might be the sort of best compromise because you know advised prices we all know what um <laughs> happens to them yeah exactly it's, i'm not going to call it a con either but it's, it's certainly a it's a charm position to be in to be able to claim advised prices all the time and whereas you really are a hostage to fortune if you're bet to sp neither is correct 
Uh, and we've chosen one and others choose others. And, and that's why you know, I get asked a lot by our teams if we if we can, you know, what our sort of records are and what we can put forward. And I, 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 the reason I say I wouldn't do that is because we, because of the way we judge ourselves. Can't live up with people. You know, if you're making 20% on SP every year, you're definitely not working as a tipster. You're definitely making it yourself because you can get on of those prices at whatever you want. Um, lots of points there. And I think the last one was fair, but... um. Let's say fair enough, you judge to SP. Um, Racing Post is the industry standard, and I presume the most, you have the most well read tipsters. Uh, I think we could say that and take that for granted. Um, well, sure, we would actually. I mean, because, because our guys are behind the paywall, it makes a massive difference what's paywalled and what's not. We save our tipsters as premium service uh, for okay. subscribers, um, whereas free, I bet there's free services that get a lot better read. Okay, um, that's actually a fair point. But even then on those free services, like, for instance, Sporting Life, um, you can go back, I think it's until 2017, to see each bet, admittedly to advised prices. Do, do you think there's a point in the future where um, you might come out or the Post might come out and say, these are the records of our tipsters, they're to SP, um, here they are, and give the public that information with sort of the proviso that it's to SP and that's how we judge ourselves and we're sticky with it? Yeah, there's, it's a discussion that we have quite regularly. Um, I probably, in my own head, would like to have it in a position where I'm happy with how we're being judged before we send it out because, you know, we're, as I've seen, none of us, we're all writing it the day before. None of us know yeah. if it's is going to be or anything remotely like it. Um, we are building uh, new uh, platforms now, and that would give us the option to do that. Um, as I say, in a perfect world. I would like to wait until we got a point where you know I'm happy with the terms are being judged on. Um, I, you do feel like you're sending the guys over the top a little bit with with mm -hmm. the FP situation because um, because you know what you know, once once it looks like it does and which is inevitably going to be not as good as advised prices. Yeah, people are going to come out and uh, and draw their conclusions from that, um, which is why I'd prefer to wait if we could. But you know, there's we have the, the means to do it and we, we will. There's no question we'll do it at some point. Okay, thank you very much for that. Um, just to round off um, this first part of the interview, um, we're talking not only about your preferred time spec, but um, do you have races that you know you prefer over others? Um, for instance, you know Thomas Thomas Gales price wise, although he tips across a broad range of events. I think um, I've heard him say in the past he prefers his big field handicaps. I know that's the case of Paul Keeley. Um, Tom Collins is you know, really, really good with his US action. Um, I prefer graded races. Um, you know, do you have any sort of sets of, sets of conditions where you think I'm much happier here um, compared to other races, or is it really a broad spectrum to you? Oh, no, de definitely the case. I mean, I would bet I would keep up to with all good racing to the extent that I could bet on all good racing. But I am in my, the columns or whatever. I've been a massive advocate of specialization for punters. I would pick a division and stick with it. It's another thing that I got from working with guys that work on ratings and whatever. These guys were so across their group of horses. It made a massive, massive difference. And I do chasers mostly in the winter. Um, nowadays, I will do um, not 215 handicaps and up because once you get below that level, you are talking about horses where it's spin the wheel to which which of its characteristics are most pertinent that day. You know, we are getting into the, the realms of horses you can't really rely on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, mostly handicap chases, 115 and up. And uh, in the summer, I keep my in with with stairs. Um, 
one of the things I took me longer to get than most was judging the pace by eye, which is why I've latched onto sectionals reasonably uh, keenly. Um, and always felt that chasing and staying races were races where you could just tell that pace that bit easily, a bit more easily. Uh, and I feel like I can do that. And yeah, so that's what I do in this, this summer to keep my eye in with the, with the stairs mostly. And, and yet yeah, I would say that chasing is the thing that I specialize in most. I'm usually, I regard myself as fairly good at telling her if a horse fancies jumping. And it's not just about being a good jumper, isn't it? It's, it's about if a horse is a, is a keen jumper. Yeah, as well, you know, to the extent to which they fancy chasing a lot of the time, and that doesn't get talked about an awful lot because it would hurt and offend people if they did. You know, your horse doesn't fancy it; it's not something you want to hear. But we can think it, uh, and I do think it, and I think that's what I try and do to to try and get a bit of an edge with those races. Just one more note: Have you ever um, run into trouble with owners um, or connectors of horses after you know comments that you've made about them? Because you have to be analytical, you have to be brutal. Um, you know, if a horse doesn't go through with its effort. You know, it's part of your job essentially to say that on the podcast. Have you ever had pushback from owners or connections about that? All the time, yeah. We get we get a lot at the post, and it was something that struck me a lot actually when I moved from Timeform across to the post. You never got it at Timeform. I don't know whether it was we've got a greater readership at the post or a broader readership, or the fact that they, everybody expects Timeform to behave like that. But I found I moderated my language a little bit at the post, and we still got uh, a lot of people. I got a phone call once from a prominent uh, flat jockey. Who had a, he had words to speak with me about? I'd use the term poorly placed on a horse of his at uh, Catrick. Uh, had been held up in a steadily run race, and I used poorly placed. And apparently, but what you're getting is the owners have seen that, and the owners have misunderstood because everybody knows that poorly placed means you know, it, tactically, it was it wasn't that it was it was yeah. just a horse that, and I know the jockey's probably given given those instructions, hold him up, and you know whether he. Could have reacted to race conditions is neither here nor there but you put poorly placed it's an understood term but when the owner you're what you're getting in some a lot of those cases is second-hand criticism yeah. um, and you know it's part of the gig really but um you know you just try and as you know yourself there are definitely ways and means of seeing certain things without seeing them and you just have to use that as much as you possibly can i'm sure we can all everybody watching this can think of their own certain few favorites of uh, of euphemisms that we'd use in terms of how they analyze horse performances and you know it means that fewer people uh get offended by it and also that everybody that does seem to know can can pick up on what it is although you know i'm generally against this idea of nodding a wink in racing i'm afraid politically it's a little bit inevitable with those things indeed um thank you very much for a fascinating part one keith melrose Hello and welcome back to Betting People with Keith Melrose of The Racing Post. This is part two where we're going to discuss um, some wider issues in the betting industry and also topics about handicapping. I'd like to get straight into it actually with a question about um, the recent uptick in differing handicapping methods um, basically data playing a really big part now the internet's been around for 20 years but it feels like to me um, as a younger or analyst um there's been a recent explosion in things such as stride data um and you know really advanced sections that you can get on at the races and the racing post and wherever else um just wanted to ask if you'd seen that really big uptick recently and why you think that is now compared to you know a decade ago because the internet's been around for quite a bit longer than that 
Yeah, I, I can't speak for the technology for so long, to be quite honest with you, but I do think that data provision and data rights is possibly the biggest challenge racing faces. I'm speaking here as a punter as much as anything mm. else. You know, I'm somebody that, that looks face, punter facing most of the time. And yeah, what you what a lot of the data you're talking about there, you see a lot of guys that have done basically homebrewed things using a lot of these high class systems and you know sophisticated methods of uh, measuring performance as people that do their own models now and have their own blogs about it and that's giving people data is the thing that's going to make or break racing and as a follower in 20 years time uh, mm. you know the next generation it's something i'm very conscious of uh, at the post because we we're trying to face we're a bit like janice we're trying to face both we're trying to face the the older generation and the younger generation and I feel like I've got to make the case for the younger generation a little bit more. What they want is data, absolutely no question. And I can definitely see it. It's not like I'm just me going, how do you do, Phil? I'm part of that. Stride data and sectionals have definitely changed how I've punted down the years. Very first column I wrote talked about how, you know, the sectionals told you that, you know, you could see with your eye, Golden Horn was a good horse. Yeah. Sectionals told you how good he was. And obviously the horse that chased him home at Nottingham that day finished third in the derby and went off favourite for the ledger, I think. Um, it's... And then stride data was another one where it told you two darn hot wouldn't stay the derby trip was the first big example of that that i always remember and i, I remember those articles um being that case being made as well yeah yeah it's it's just it i think it's extremely useful um you know there's but because you'll notice the tpd data that's that's really quite good um i, I hear other people saying that there's there's some slight it's where it can be improved for definite you know it's only still quite new uh, information but they're only at the ssr tracks for reasons of political reasons and for media rights reasons and racing does need to get its act together a little bit more to provide those in a more coherent fashion you know there's very few sites where you can watch all replays for instance you can watch all ssrs on ssr's channel and all our tvs and rtvs but yep. only places like the racing post one of very few where you can watch them all in the one place and that isn't good that is not going to help people get into racing to the extent that we want them to we want to create obsessives people the, the sort of older generation we're catering to at the post, they guys have got their systems and have done it the same way for years. They are so zoned in. This is their pastime. This is their hobby. It's, it's, they spend so much time on it. And if we want the next generation to do that too, we need to provide them data and uh, in a far more coherent format than we currently do. Now, I don't know the solution. I'm not a politician within racing. I'm just a, just a writer, just a tipster. Um, I don't have those answers. I know as a punter what I want to see. I want to see that sort of level of data coverage everywhere. I use stride data, I use sectional data. It's it's been both of those factors have they've not revolutionized my punting, but they've certainly had a significant impact on how I look at horses now. I will still have a look if I'm not sure about a horse changing trips, I'll check if it's running the old weather because that's the only other place I'm getting those that data. Uh, and if a horse hasn't run at the on the old weather, if it's only running new market maidens, I'm not getting that data. And it it changes my experience, even somebody in, in my position. So it's it's so important that we get that right. I'm not sure if that is answering your question, to be honest. I might have taken a slightly, uh, I might have done that awful no, I mean, question I, thing. I agree. I, I agree totally, um, especially in terms of the accessibility. Um, it's improved a bit um, thanks to some big media organisations, but we could still do an awful lot better in terms of unifying it. So, no, I, I completely agree with that. And, um, you know, we're talking, we're having this debate in racing. Um, you know, every other sport, basically, it seems like on the planet 
has this amount of data already. You know, there's expected goals models in football, um, which you can just get for free. You don't have to pay for. The thing with XG is how well, how readily was it accepted? You would expect football fans to balk at that more than mm. racing fans, but they have XG's just been assimilated into football so easily, hasn't it? Yeah, um, it, it has. Um, I mean, I should actually say with some credit um, at the races have endorsed into it and they have bought into it and ITV a feed car not oh so far behind you do get running sectionals um on ITV but I think of that date wider data point is definitely one I agree with you on um on to another quite tricky political issue and uh, one which I think actually there is a racing post special out uh, about now the fixture list um do you believe pretty simply that we have too much racing well, in a word, I would say yes, definitely. There's, um, yeah, there's too much racing. There is. Um, you know, I think the the reason we have the fixture list we have is for levy reasons. Um, I think the prize, the way we're structured for funding prize money is it stretches it too thinly. Um, you know, you couldn't, you could have this many races if you had a top monopoly. Every country that has a top monopoly has far better prize money. And we just, we have got neither nor, you know, we've not got, we've got a large fixture list and a funding model that takes quite a lot of the proceeds out of racing. Um, so yeah, there is, there is too much racing. And, you know, I speak as just with a sort of tipping and punting hat on, you, you don't want to bet in low grade racing. If you're a serious punter, you don't want to, you know, so it's, that's the racing that gets proliferated, you know, because obviously there's only so many good horses to go around. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely, uh, of that view, yeah, there is too much. I think, I, I, and I don't think, I don't think, is there anybody that thinks there's too little? No, I, I certainly can't say that I spoke to anybody who doesn't think the fixture list could do with a reduction. I mean, the systems make it very different, difficult. But personally, I've always thought that the Irish model, as far as fixtures are concerned, is very much ideal. You, you rarely see you know uncompetitive or very small fields i find in ireland um look at the horse population in ireland you know it's about it's about two-thirds of britain something like that and you know they have a third of the races if that mm. it's, it's a far more it's a far more healthy setup yeah um a wide a wide a couple of questions on betting overall um in your opinion where does racing fit into you know the overall betting industry uh, right now because you're seeing lots of other sports um taking really big shares going forward how do you think racing sits with that and um how do you think that might change in future that's a that's a really difficult question um i'm gonna hopefully not go too far off track again i see the growth in betting a lot of the time with the generation coming through which would be you know my age your age and maybe the guys younger than that coming through we are American sports are getting a lot of pickup and I've done a bit of looking at American sports recently. It's a growth area for racing too. And the, the level of data they have in those American sports is just another reason that I think that where we are with, with providing data to people is the way to go. Racing will need to show up on that. It's not, bookmakers have diversified so much that the high turnover, the high event concentration that racing has, you know, 10,000 events a year compared with, you know, how many Premier League games. Uh, or whatever is it isn't holding anymore that's the reason the fixture list expands a little bit isn't it and yeah racing is going to have to offer a little bit more as a product rather than just for turnover um 
without that, I think it's going to go a little bit the way that US racing has, which, you know, you, you hear about the, the doldrums US racing, and it's actually very well funded because of the, the monopoly system they have over there for toting a lot of states, or the heads historically had, it's all breaking down now. Um, it's, there is, I mean, I don't want to predict because the prediction would be we don't adapt and we're humped. <laughs> but I would like to think that we will adapt and we will try and create a product that is marketable, not just to you know, the everyday audience. ITV do a very, very good job at that. But I, I want to see the sort of obsessive audience you know, thought of as well, you know, but don't, your next, your next generation of obsessive isn't the 60 year olds now getting to 120, it's the 20 year olds that are, that are going to be 50 and 30 years time, that's how you're going to, you're going to keep racing relevant, and uh, yeah, we need to think about how we treat the generation coming through, and how other sports that are proving successful are doing it, and uh, yeah, without that, I think we're in trouble, but you hope that we we can pull together to to do something about that. And if we do, why can't racing maintain its market share? You know, it is a sport that we've still got a lucrative contract to be on terrestrial television. We're still a sport that is the second, or it was pre-COVID. We'll see how it shakes out afterwards. The second most attended spectator sport in the UK. All those stats you hear all the time in the post. Those things are still there. And they'll only go away slowly. But they will go away unless you adapt. And we just need to make sure that we're doing that, that we're catering not only for who's there just now, but who'll be there tomorrow. Do you have any specific policies in mind that you think it would be a good idea for racing to adapt? I, I've already sort of hinted towards it a little bit. The, the media rights thing is how you get around this spotty provision of data at the moment, and a more coherent and more sport-wide distribution of you know, media rights would be the way you would hopefully rectify that. I'm not up and up in the politics to tell you exactly how that would come about, but I know that sport, racing jurisdictions where elements are run for racing um, do an awful lot better out of it than, uh, than the ones that don't. You see the data that you're getting out of France now. You know, France, in terms of racing culture, the PMU um, being the, the dominant force of the monopoly forces, it's, it is quite conservative, small c conservative, like French society, really. But they're already providing far better data to their customers in terms of you know general usage than, than, than we are in this country and it's because it's a very well supported sport so in terms of yeah the specific policies you know a, a universal uh, treatment of rights would probably be the first step i take but don't ask me how we do it it needs far far more important far more clever people than me to figure that one out yeah some interesting thoughts um one last question Punters in general, especially um, those who would describe themselves as serious punters, have had, I think it's fair to say, um, described having more trouble with, you know, getting on, basically. Um, do you think um, that all these issues, do you think they present, present um, over time, you know, a serious threat, basically, to, to not only sort of racing's turnover if people sort of switch off, stop doing what they're doing, um, but also to basically betting firms' business models. I couldn't speak for the firms' business models. They obviously think it's in their interest to restrict punters that are taking money out of them, which would, on the very much the surface, look logical enough. What I would say is that our system, I've talked about top monopolies and how well-funded those countries are. I think if you're starting tomorrow, you would do it like that. But mm. the, the trade-off we've had in this country, more than probably any other country in the world, is that you know it was always... What we've got 
that France doesn't have, that Hong Kong doesn't have, that the US doesn't have is punter choice. And restrictions are taking away that trade-off. Punter choice isn't there if you can't get on. And this, Britain is a country where, or in terms of a racing and betting landscape, punter choice is the only, you know, the money's going out of the sport, but the trade-off is that you get punter choice and high levels of engagement as a result of that. And if you're restricting, you know, very indiscriminately, as seems to be increasingly the case, that punter engagement has got a, it's got a leaky bucket. And yeah, I don't think, I don't know if it'll ever reach a tipping point, but I wouldn't want to take the risk. And, um, you know, there's an awful lot of element of there's only one side getting to do what they want at the moment, as a punter versus a bookmaker. And I don't know if it will make a difference in the long term or not, but it's certainly how it feels like to anybody who's a serious punter. I think it's a very interesting note upon which to end this week's Betting People. Thank you so much for your time, Keith Melrose. Not at all. Thanks, Will. New Betting People interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. Begambleaware.org. Over 18 only.